today. We've got a few more hours before the snow hits. So we've got to go get our milk and bread while we have time. We can come just in time for evening service, but we need our milk and bread um, before then, before the lines get too long at, at Walmart. Um, so as soon as we're done here, we're all going to rush. We've got a short sermon, so we'll get out before everyone else, um, and we can go get that taken care of. Um, there's a biology professor at Southeastern Louisiana University who... Um, did a, uh, he was a biology professor and he did this study that I only imagine the this University of Southeastern Louisiana would fund. And in this experiment, he, he uh, put out rubber reptiles, so snakes and um, lizards and things, and he would put them out on the road uh, and he let 22,000, this took some time, 22,000 drivers to drive past these rubber reptiles on the road and ha see how they would react to them. And he uh, put these fake snakes and, and turtles and, and lizards in places where, um, in one group, it was where people would have to swerve out of their way not to hit them. And in another group, he put the reptiles off on the side of the road where uh, drivers would have to swerve to hit them. And he found that if the driver was already going towards the reptile, sometimes they would swerve, sometimes they wouldn't. But if the reptile was outside of where the driver was naturally going, that driver would swerve to kill the reptile. Every single time, it seemed like, over and over. And his conclusion was there are apparently very few animals hit accidentally on the highway and some of his observations a policeman crushed one of the snakes with his tires and then stopped and pulled his gun on it uh, one woman <laughs> one woman saw the snake in the road and swerved to kill it and then turned around and ran over it five more times and again he, ha he has this on camera 22,000 cars he saw drive by and that's what he found snakes are generally not well liked creatures people will go out of their way to kill them both men and women have a, a healthy respect but he found according to this research women are two times as likely to um, kill the snake as men likely to fear snakes as men in fact genesis 3 tells us that god put enmity or hatred between the serpent and the woman and we've looked at these first three chapters of genesis now for a couple of weeks we tried to piece together the whole story of christ starting with christ's role in creation and how uh he was the instrument by which we were all made we looked at the first sacrifice that god um provided to adam and eve through their garments of animal skin uh that pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice of christ but this morning we want to go back to genesis 3 Look at the same passage and look at it uh, slightly a, a different way that points forward to the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and ultimately the victory of Jesus Christ. We read in Genesis 3, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, as much fear as some people seem to have of snakes, I'm pretty sure that's not what this verse uh, is talking about when God says that he's going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman. First, this word enmity, it doesn't mean fear. Enmity means hatred. It means anger. It means that you are, are violently upset about something. It's an emotion intended for someone's enemy, not a, a creature that you are afraid of. This is a creature that you despise, that you hate. The serpent was the enemy, and God intended to destroy that old serpent with the offspring of the woman. But what does that mean? Yeah, put yourself in Eve's shoes when she hears these words. When Eve heard the message, I think she only heard what she wanted to hear. Her sin had robbed her of her and Adam's position in the garden, and they've been excluded from God's intimate presence. And now this promise was that a boy child would undo that damage. And I imagine she figured that God was promising her that she would have a boy child and he would be her ticket back into the garden. Eve's firstborn child was firstborn boy, was Cain, right? In Genesis 4.1, we're told that Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Whenever you have a child, I hope someone says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. She had acquired the boy child promised in the prophecy. So she must have thought. She figured Cain was her ticket back into the garden. And later she gives birth to Abel, and Abel's name means emptiness or vanity. And essentially, she's saying, God's already given me Cain. I've already acquired this man, Cain. What do I need Abel for? But she was wrong. Cain wasn't going to be her salvation. Cain was only going to be her heartache. And this wasn't what the prophecy pointed toward. He killed his younger brother, uh, Abel, and he went into exile for that sin. And so what God was promising here in Genesis 3 wasn't Cain. It pointed forward to something else. So what did this prophecy Mean. To be clear, prophecy is the foretelling or the predicting of, of something to come inspired by God. The Bible defines a, a prophet as an ordinary person who receives extraordinary information from God that is otherwise unknown to mankind. And even while Eve may not have understood at the moment, at the time, what this prophecy 
met, this prophecy reveals a powerful truth for us today. The passage is the first record of Satan's deception. He confuses, he misleads, he ultimately causes great harm to the first man and the first woman. And this deception and how extremely easy Adam and Eve were deceived by it and then rebelled against God's command is what has led to the chaos that we've seen in this world ever since and the chaos that's been in the human heart ever since. It's a powerful narrative, a, a true story of what happened to the human race after God's original blessing of creation. But here, even in what we could arguably, arguably consider to be the saddest of passages that, that foreshadows all the suffering that mankind is going to see throughout its history, we see the first hint of redemption too. This prophecy, it wasn't about Cain. It wasn't going to be an immediate resolution, but God was pointing forward to the first prophecy of Christ. Uh, and God used a, a fairly odd way of saying this here in Genesis 3. He's saying it was the seed or the offspring of the woman. And generally, that's not how children were spoken of, at least in those days. Generally, uh, a descendant was spoken of as the seed of the man, not rarely the seed of the woman. The nation of Israel was called the seed of Abraham or the seed of Jacob. The priests serving in the temple were the seed of Aaron. God spoke of punishing some of the seed of David. Or children were generally spoken of as being the seed of the man. But this prophecy referred to the child as the seed of the woman. It's almost as if there's no earthly father that's going to be involved. And Jesus, born of a virgin, a woman who had never known a man, fits that description perfectly. And the seed of the woman, meaning Jesus, was going to bruise the head of the serpent, who from the context we know is Satan. And in the process, this young man, the seed of the woman, would himself be bruised. That's what Isaiah in another prophetic passage tells us about Isaiah or about Jesus. Isaiah said he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. If we are going to tell the whole story of Jesus, which we're endeavoring to do this month, Satan has to be a major character. He is the primary focus of why Jesus came. He's the major reason that Christ died on the cross. 1 John 3.8 tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to defeat Satan. And earlier, Isaiah tells us why. In Isaiah 14, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the dawn. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. You know, Lucifer's objective was a takeover. He wanted to overthrow God and rule in his place. Revelation 12 tells us that Satan was able to recruit a third of the angels in this cause. And so, that was his objective, but how was Satan going to accomplish this? How did he think that he would ever be able to pull God down and put himself on the throne? I, who would even fathom doing something, the creator of everything? How could he even possibly imagine that? Well, that's where Genesis 3 comes in. If you didn't know better, it, you might think that this encounter between Satan 
and Eve was accidental, that Satan just happened to be walking around in the garden and stumbled upon Eve in the garden that day. But this didn't happen by coincidence. Satan was there because this was a part of his plan. Genesis 1 and 2, they're all about God creating the world and everything in it. And then God gave the world to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1.28, we're told God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You know, God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. He gave them authority over everything in creation. And the earth was the focus of all of God's creative power. And Adam and Eve were the crowning glory of all those efforts. They were designed to bring glory to God and rule over the earth. And it seems that Satan reasoned that if he could take that away from God, if he could take Adam and Eve away from God, he could effectively take his crown as well. And scripture says he exceeded or succeeded in part of this plan. First, he took over ownership of this world. John 12, 31 describes Satan as the prince of this world. Ephesians 2, 2 says that he is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. First John 5, 19 says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Satan succeeded in taking the world. When Adam and Eve took and ate of that fruit in the garden, he effectively turned over the deed of this world to the devil. Then Satan took ownership of man away from God. That's why the Bible speaks so often of us being redeemed, right? We're redeemed from something because Satan has taken us. We've been purchased by Christ. 1 Peter 1.18 tells us it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect. Hebrews 9.12 says, by his own blood, meaning Jesus, entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Or as 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, Satan owned this world. Because of our sin, Satan owned this world. And for that same reason, Satan even owned each and every one of us at some time. And Satan's objective was to bring God down from his throne and take his spot, become God himself. That's why when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, Satan offered Jesus a deal, right? What was the deal he offered? In Matthew 4, 8 through 9, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He says, all this I'll give you if you just bow down and worship me. In other words, he's saying, just give me what I want, Satan tells Jesus, Make me God, worship me, let me sit in the, the spot of Jehovah God, and then I'll give you back some of what I've taken away. But of course, Satan had no intention of giving up control of us. We, we had the breath of God into us. We were made in the image of God. And as long as he held us, Satan held the trump card. He could say to God, I am going to take your spot because I own the world and I own your creation. I own the people who are made in your image. And it tells us in scripture that he had the power of death in his hand. It says he came and he became like us so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death in Hebrews 2. 14 through 15. That was Jesus coming to save us from that fear of death because that's how Satan 
held us. Death was Satan's ultimate power over mankind. And now, Satan knew the prophecy. He knew that the seed of the woman, this Jesus, had come to crush his head. And so he knew he had to take Jesus out before Jesus went and fulfilled this prophecy. Before he was able to crush his head, he had to bite at his heel. And so he used every trick he had. The Bible tells us that Satan had a number of tools at his disposal. We're told he's a master of deception in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. He's a liar, John eight forty four. He's a tempter in Matthew 4, 3. And that he's the accuser of the brethren, Revelation twelve ten. And throughout the Gospels, we see him using deceptions and lies and temptation and false accusations on Jesus, but none of it works. And so ultimately, he had to fall back on the biggest trick he had in his back. The biggest tool he had was death. Satan figured if he could kill Jesus before he'd come to do what he came to do, then he was home free. He'd no longer have to fear the threat of God's prophecy in the garden. And so behind the scenes, Satan worked on the people closest to Jesus. John 13, 2 tells us the devil prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Satan wanted that to happen. Jesus warned Peter, Satan has asked you to sift you as wheat. Luke 22, 31. If he could only kill Jesus. This is what Satan wanted to happen. And then it occurred to him to use the cross to do his work. Satan thought the cross was his idea. He thought Jesus dying on the cross was his plan. That's how he was going to take control. It was the cruelest form of execution ever devised. And I think Satan intended to use it as his ultimate expression of contempt for God. Make God suffer one last time. Make God feel the pain that mankind had felt for so many years. Make God understand that he was in command of this world. I hold the trump card, God, Satan was saying, and you cannot forget it. I hold the power over death and you can't overcome that. I remember one of the older movies about Jesus' life. There's a part where Satan is in the crowd. Uh, he's moving from group to group and he's egging the leaders uh, and the people to call Jesus to be crucified. Crucify him. He whispers in, to one person's ear, crucify him. He nearly shouts from another area. And all the while the people respond and they call for Jesus to die. Satan thought this was his idea, that he was wrong. And this is what Jesus had to do. It says back there in Genesis 3, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You know, God speaks of the woman, Eve, the mother of all life, the matriarch of humankind and of womankind in particular, and to her, who represents all of existence as we know it, God says that the offspring of the woman will be in battle with Satan himself. Her seed will be struck by Satan in the heel. That's a wound. That's a real wound. Imagine getting struck on your heel, getting bit by a snake on your foot. That's not anything to disregard. But here in this passage, though the offspring of the woman is struck in the heel, a wound from which he, he can emerge, he can survive and recover from, Satan, will have, well, what will happen to Satan? The offspring of the woman will crush his head. Satan will ultimately be destroyed. He'll be defeated. He'll be done for. And this happened, and this is what happened, at the cross 
of Jesus. The offspring of the woman will crush the head. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. It's the earliest hint here in Genesis 3 of Christ's victory. It's the earliest hint of the whole story of Jesus Christ. By his death on the cross, Jesus defeated death, Satan's most powerful tool. By his blood, he purchased us from dominion of Satan. As Colossians 1.13 says, the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. At one time, we were owned, we belonged to Satan. But by the blood of Jesus, we've been bought back. We've been brought back into God's love and his mercy. And from the very first pages of this book, we read about Jesus uh, as a baby in a manger and uh, before he hung on the cross. Before all of that, we see God pointing to a Savior, telling us he's the answer. That's what he told Eve, and that's what he's told every generation of his people since. There is a seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent that's trying to own us. Uh, years ago, there was a preacher in Boston, Massachusetts, named S.D. Gordon. Uh, one Sunday, he got into the pulpit, and he pulled out an old, rusty birdcage. And at first, he explained how he came by the cage. He said that that week he had found this boy about 10 years old. Uh, he was carrying this cage, and it had about three uh, nasty black birds sitting in it, and they were trapped for some reason. And curious, he asked the boy what he intended to do with them. He said, well, I'm going to play with them, have some fun for a while. The boy responded, and Gordon thought about that for a moment, and he asked, well, what are you going to do with them after that? Well, yeah, I have some cats at home, and they like cats. Uh, and that didn't sit too well with Mr. Gordon, so he asked the, bird, or the boy what he would take for the birds. And surprise, the boy blurted out, well, mister, you don't want to buy these birds. They're ugly. They're just field birds. They don't sing. They don't do anything. You don't want them. Nevertheless, the, the preacher persisted, and he soon struck a, a bargain to buy the birds from the boy. And when the boy was out of sight, he opened the cage, and he set the birds free. And in the pulpit, here holding this cage, Gordon told a different story that related to this, that how uh, Satan had boasted that he had baited a trap and caught a whole world of people. And Jesus asked him, what are you going to do with them? Oh, I'm going to play with them. I'm going to tease them. I'm going to make them marry and divorce and fight and kill one another, Satan replied. And when you get tired of playing with them, what will you do with them then? Jesus asked. Well, I'll condemn them, Satan answered. They're no good anyway. And Jesus then asked what Satan would take for them. You can't be serious, the devil responded. They would just spit on you. They'd hit you. They'd hammer nails in your hands. They're no good. How much, the Lord asked again. Well, if you want a deal, I'll take all your tears and all your blood. That's the price, Satan said almost gleefully. And Jesus said, okay. And he paid the price. He took the cage and he opened the door. As soon as Satan had his first victory over Adam and Eve, God showed how his son, the seed of Eve, would be the victor. Satan may have nipped at his heel, but with his tremendous sacrifice, our Savior crushes his head, saving us from the fear of Satan's greatest weapon, the power of death, opening the door of our cage of sin. And all that's left for us is to decide if we're going to fly away, 
Those birds still had a choice. They could sit there in the cage that once trapped them, or they could fly out. Satan's happy to keep us. And, but through Jesus, we have another option. We can turn from our past life of slavery to sin. We can be immersed in water so we can be cleansed of it, and we can rise up to a new life with Christ as both our master, but also our victor. If you're ready to do that today, now's the time to come to the front of the room. We're waiting to help you. 